when I was standing up here just a second ago before the song got over, I kind of got flashbacks to when I was a kid, and you know when the speaker gets up there before the song is over, you know it's going to be a long one, and that does not represent what's going to happen here this morning, um, but I've really enjoyed studying for this, this topic. Um, I, I, got, I wasn't here last week, but I got to listen to both Carrie and Jason's sermons on the podcast on our intro uh, to Ezekiel, or to... Uh, the book of Revelation, and then uh, Brother Jason's sermon as well. And if you haven't listened to those, I really encourage you to do that because it's going to give you context. And context is so important. Context, context, context. That's what we preach all the time when we talk about Scripture. Not only the book of Revelation, but any Scripture in general. You need to know the context about what you're going to be reading about. And that's especially true uh, with the book of Revelation. You go all the way back to third grade reading, and context is the who, what, where, when, and why. And that's what we need to understand whenever we're looking at the book of Revelation. Or just, it doesn't make any sense. It looks like a jumbled, jumbled mess. We need to understand what the context was. And Carrie did a really good job of going over the context. And really, the, the overarching theme is these churches that we're going to read about this morning, you're about to experience tribulation. You're about to experience some real hardship in life, and that's going to be brought on by this Roman government. And so in this trying time, you need to be able to withstand. You need to be able to endure uh, this difficult time. And at the beginning of Revelation, it, it opens up with John, um, who has this vision. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. And so already at the beginning, in in verse 3, he's saying the time is near. And so we have this sense of urgency. Something's about to happen. It's going to happen soon. We need to be prepared for it. And Revelation was intended for a specific audience. And it was was intended for uh, seven churches that we read about in Revelation 1, verse 9, where it says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. And so you can put yourself in John's shoes. You're just minding your own business on a Sunday morning on the Lord's day. And from behind you, this loud, blaring voice like a trumpet tells you, I want you to write this message. And he says, write what you see in a book and send it to seven churches, to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And he tells John, you need to write to these seven churches. And he gives them what we have, two chapters, chapters two and chapters three of Revelation, uh, to write to these seven churches. And it's seven, seven different letters that he writes there. And like I said earlier, his overarching theme to these seven churches is you're about to endure persecution. There's some things in your life that you need to fix, and that's what his letter to these seven churches are, if you want to be able to endure that persecution that's coming your way. And I want to get a little bit more specific than that this morning. Overall, that's the overarching theme and purpose for Revelation, but each one of these churches has something that we can learn from this morning. Uh, We're going to look at five churches this morning, then two churches this afternoon. Here's a map of where those seven churches are. They're all in, in Asia. Um, right there on the northern border of the Mediterranean Sea, right in the middle where, if you go and read the book of Acts, all of Acts is about the establishment of the church. 
and you read a lot about these, especially Ephesus, but about the establishment of the churches there in Asia. And some of these churches are mentioned there in the book of Acts. Um, here's a different view, just a little bit more close up. Um, we're going to look at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, or Pergamum, as we're going to read this morning, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, and Philadelphia. And you can see the island of Patmos, and that's where John is writing. That's where this revelation was revealed to him. Um, and it's really interesting to me. You go in, like I said, you read the book of Acts, and you see the establishment of all these churches, and then you read Revelation. And we get 40 years down the road, what do these churches look like? How have these churches succeeded, or how have they not succeeded? What is their spiritual stance right now? What's it looking like there in those churches? And, and we're going to find out that it's good for some, but for some, they're in bad shape. And they've, they've got a lot of corrections and a lot of fixing that needs to happen. This morning, I want to look at the topic of from endurance to indifference. And to show how you can be an enduring Christian, you can be an enduring church, but eventually, with enough progression of sin, as we're going to look at through these things on the left-hand side, you can become indifferent. And indifference is where you're just apathetic. You don't care anymore. You, you just, it doesn't matter to you anymore. And I want to show you that this morning and evaluate yourself as we go through these, whether you're enduring, an enduring Christian, whether you've lost your fervor, whether you're tolerating sin or participating in sin, or whether you're just indifferent, figure out where you're at on this spectrum because every one of us fits into this spectrum uh, in our Christian lives, and I want you to identify that for yourself um, so we can, we can identify that and correct it. So the first church, we're going to look at Smyrna. And Spir Smyrna was really in a terrible spot as far as idolatry goes. It's right there on the coast. It was a coastal city, um, and generally anytime you have a coastal city, there's a lot of Greek god influence that happens and lots of Roman god influences that happen um, in that city. And it's got some interesting history. This is a statue of Julius Caesar, and you probably remember hearing about Julius Caesar. Uh, he died in 44 B.C. He was murdered in 44 B.C. But shortly after that, there was this comet that appeared in the sky. And because of that comet appearing shortly after his death, these Romans thought Caesar was a god. Julius Caesar was a god, and he needs to be worshipped. And so they started erecting shrines to these, to these emperors, these Roman emperors, and these emperors were then considered gods, and they were, they were worshipped as gods. And people would worship them as gods, and then entire cities would worship them uh, collectively as gods. And you fast forward to uh, 37 AD, you've probably heard of Tiberius Caesar. Tiberius Caesar died, and the city of Smyrna that we're going to study in just a second was, was the quickest, and they won a contest, actually, to find out who could erect the fastest shrine so that Tiberius could be worshipped. And he was worshipped there, and this, uh, they won that contest. And as we go on to 80 AD, so fast forward another 40 years or so, it's now required to worship these Roman emperors. You could now be persecuted, you could be killed, you could be threatened, and that presents a problem for the church here at Smyrna, for the Christians. So let's read what, what Christ says to them in verse 9. He says, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so they had this cult of Jews who were Jews in a sense. They really, what after you read commentaries on this, basically these were people who worshipped Roman gods and um, called themselves Jews for some unknown reason. But he calls them a synagogue of Satan. And so that's what these Christians had to put up with, was this synagogue of Satan. And that's some pretty harsh language. Um, but Jesus, in this, 
He gives them a warning, but he also gives them encouragement at the same time. He says, I know you're rich. And he goes on in verse 10. He says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. And 10 days, a lot of times when you read 10 days in the Bible, uh, that's a symbol for just a, a long persecution that's going to happen. So it might have been 10 days, but anyway, it's, it's going to be a long persecution long trial that they're having to endure. And you talk about persecution, this, this church was going to face it. Nowhere, or there might be one more church that Christ specifically points out the persecution and gives them details of the persecution that they're going to have to endure. He does that for Smyrna. And for me, that tells me it's going to be bad. You need to prepare for it. And I can't imagine the type of terrible things that they had to go through, the persecutions, the, it talks about imprisonment and, and imprisonment and probably torture and even worse than that. And at the beginning in verse 9, he said, I know you're rich and your poverty, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. So physically, you don't have it going for you, you're, you're, you're very poor, you're persecuted, but spiritually you're rich. And that tells you the overarching theme here at Smyrna. Christ said, you're rich, you're enduring, you're a faithful church. And this, this church, they were followers of God. They stuck together, and if they continued to do this, they were, they were able to get past this persecution that the, the Roman government brought to them. Very similar to that, we have the church at Ephesus. And Ephesus had been around for a long time, and it was really one of the greatest seaports of the time. It was known for for trade, uh, big seaports that came in uh, that people could ship goods to, but then also they had big major roads that came out of this city. And generally with a large commercial city, you have large commercial gods. And that was the case here at Ephesus. They had this large commercial god that you've probably heard of, and that's Diana. And we actually get to read about Diana, this goddess Diana, in the book of Acts. And in Acts, this man named Demetrius, um, he was trying to create a problem, trying to create some some tribulation for Paul as Paul was trying to establish this church here at Ephesus. And Demetrius gathers up this group of Ephesians and he tries to uh, create this riot. This is what he says. Demetrius talking here. He says, Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into, de into disrepute, but also the temple of our great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the, and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And so we read about this, uh, this temple, this temple of the great goddess Diana, and this is an artist's rendition of this. And you've probably seen movies that have this in it and pictures of this. Um, but it truly was a work of art. A beautiful, beautiful temple there. This is where they went and they worshipped Diana. And the city of Ephesus was so committed, as you could see from that reading, they were so committed to the goddess Diana. And I, I read in one place that Alexander the Great, when this was being built in the three or 400 B.C. time period, he was trying to fund the building of this temple so that he could put his name on it. He said, I just want to put my, my name on one of the, the pillars there, and I'm going to fund this for you. But the city there said, nope, no one but Diana is going to be on this. And because of that, they turned away Alexander the Great's money, and they funded the entire building of this temple um, so that they could only put the name of Diana on there. 
that tells you how dedicated they were to Diana and how much they worshipped Diana. And Jesus, he says to them in uh, chapter 2, verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, just like the church at Smyrna. They were enduring. And how you cannot bear those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. So there's a lot of good things that are going on here in Smyrna, or in Ephesus, just like there were in Smyrna. They were enduring. He mentions it several times. You're enduring patiently. You have patient endurance. That's what he was writing to the church here. He said, you need to continue in doing that. And this church definitely had hardship. You think about all the people there and the, the riot that we read about in Acts chapter, uh, or earlier in Acts. Um, but these people were committed. It says up here, they could not bear those who are evil. And I, I think about in our lives, do we bear those who are evil? We can't stand evil. I think sometimes we allow that to creep into our lives, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. He goes on in verse 6, to, talking to the Ephesians. He says, Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And we're not going to get into who the Nicolaitans were or what they stood for, but basically they stood for evil. Everything they practiced, everything they thought about, everything they did and tried to get others to do was evil. And the church at Ephesus, they didn't want anything to do with it. They hated the works of the Nicolaitans. They didn't want anything to do with these evil practices. We go on, I, I think about Romans chapter 12. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And uh, you look at the Greek word for abhor, and it literally means to have a horror of evil. And so in your life, do you have a horror of evil? Are you scared to death of the sin that, that is in your lives? That's what we're told to do. We need to have a horror of it. And I, I ask you and I beg you to, to have that horror. Because if you have a horror for evil and a horror for sin, you're going to be a lot less likely to want to be a part of it. The church at Ephesus had a horror of evil. They didn't want anything to do with it. Um, they hated it. But they let one aspect of their Christianity slip. In verse 4, he says, But I have this against you. And to hear Christ say that to you. Imagine Christ comes to you personally and says, I have this against you. And that, that scares me to death to think that Christ could have something against me. He says that you have abandoned the love you had at first. That initial fervor, that initial love and, and passion that you had for, for me as Christ, you've lost it. And I think about what was the love that they had at first? What did that look like? You go back to Acts chapter 19, right when this church was being established. He says, also many of those who were now believers came, this is talking about the believers there, um, the new converts to this church. They came confessing and divulging their practices, and a number of those who had practiced magic arts and brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. And so these people were on fire. The, the, their hearts were on fire emotionally. They were burning these books. Um, you look at 50,000 pieces of silver, that equates now to seven to eight million dollars that they had burned up. These people were committed. They weren't going back. They loved the Lord. They had passion for what Christ was standing for, what Paul was preaching to them. They were on fire. And now 40 years down the road, we get to Revelation, and he says, you lost that. It's gone. You don't have that initial fervor anymore. You lost that first love that you had here. How does this happen? 
And I think about in our lives, your worship, your, your love for Christ, it begins at your worship of him. And your worship to God, if it becomes ritualistic, if it becomes a habitual, you've lost your first love. You've lost that initial fervor, that passion that you once had. It's not enthusiastic and spirit-led anymore. When showing up just becomes checking the box. When you go to church just to check the box, just so you can have that completed uh, for the week. I, I spoke on this probably two years ago now. If you just show up to check the church box, you're doing it wrong. You've lost your first love. Church has become a habit to you. That, that grin and bear it attitude or just going ho-hum through the, through the assembly, just not really caring what's going on, but just going through the motions. That's when you lose your initial fervor. And that's what happened to the church here. I don't know what specific works they were deficient in and what, what they weren't doing that made Christ think they had lost their fervor, but something happened. They didn't have that passion. They were just showing up. And in our lives, we need to evaluate, are we just showing up? Are we here for a reason? Are we here to serve Christ because we love him? That leads us to the next church, because if you, if you lose your love, you lose your first love, you lose your passion, you've gone from enduring, you've lost your first love, that can lead to the next sin of toleration. And that's what happened here at Thyatira. And Thyatira, it was a city rooted in trading. And we read about Lydia, you remember the name Lydia? She was from Thyatira. She, she was a seller of purple goods. She was, that, that was part of her trade. Pretty much everyone there in Thyatira um, had some type of trade that they were involved in. Probably every single church, member of the church there in Thyatira uh, was part of this trading guild that was here in, in the church at Thyatira. Um, I couldn't find much about persecution here. I couldn't find much about idolatry. couldn't find much about Greek god worship or Roman emperor worship. So really the church here at Thyatira had it, I mean, as far as persecution goes, had it pretty good. Um, but Christ still had uh, a few good things to say about them. He says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance. There's that word patient endurance again. They were enduring patiently, just like Ephesus, just like Smyrna were doing, and that your latter works exceed the first. They weren't stagnant. They were progressing they were, they were always trying to do better is what that, the latter works exceed the first. What you're doing now is better than what you were doing previously. You have works, you have love, you have faith. They were doing a lot of good things. They were a hard-working church. Um, and if, if John were to write a letter here to the church at Amarillo, I hope that this is what it would look like. But I hope that verse 20 would not be included. He says, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Perhaps they were too loving, too uh, patient with the members of the church there, and they tolerated evil. Their, their patience and love allowed them to, to tolerate this evil um, at the church there. And I don't want to spend time speculating about Jezebel and, and if her name was actually Jezebel and all the similarities that we see between her and Jezebel, the, the wife of King Ahab in the Old Testament. But she was evil. And that's the point of him mentioning Jezebel. She was evil. She spoke and she was trying to influence the church here to do a lot of evil things. 
And the Christians here in Thyatira tolerated her. And so they didn't send her out of the church like they should have. And you think about these two stickers. You've probably seen these on the back of, of, bumper, of bumper cars, on the back of cars, bumper stickers on the back of cars. And toleration and coexisting in our culture is a very common thing. Everybody needs to coexist. You need to get along. You need to tolerate and the reason behind this is people don't like the fact that we are going to call out their sin. And that was the, the case here at, uh, at Thyatira. People don't want to be told what to do. And um, we have to tolerate the world's sin. That's just part of it. When we go out of this church and we're out in the world, we have to tolerate the world's sin. But the problem is, is when sin creeps into the church, we don't tolerate the sin in the church. And that's the difference. As members of the church of God, we don't tolerate sin within the church itself. Toleration is not allowed. And this was a very serious issue um, that Jesus dealt with. Um, we'll read in verse 21 or 22. This is how Jesus dealt with that. He says, Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed. Those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each other, to each of you according to to your works. Does this look like Jesus tolerated evil here? That's some, some very harsh language. That's some, I mean, he he's, has a lot of terrible things to say about Jezebel there. Do you tolerate evil in your life? Think about that. What are you tolerating in your life? The sin of toleration is a very serious sin because it's so subtle. And you think about toleration, it allows me to be a part of the world and, or part of Christianity, but a part of the world as well. I don't have to give up what this world has to offer. I don't have to cast off the world. I can be a part of it. That's the problem with toleration. And the last time I spoke, we talked about looking at parents' guides to TV shows and to movies before you watch them. Because you can see kind of what's, what's in these films, what, what is going on in these films that I don't want a part of my life. What sin is in that that, that sh- I shouldn't be watching? And we looked at Yellowstone. We looked at uh, Game of Thrones. And you can go and you can see exactly what is in these things, in these TV shows. And you think about Game of Thrones. And I remember when I was in dental school, I had this, uh, a friend of mine, and we did this Bible study. And every week we went to this Bible study, and we would, I think we were looking at, at 2 Timothy at the time, and we went through this 45-minute study of 2 Timothy. And as soon as the study got over, he said, hey, I want to invite everybody over to the house to have a Game of Thrones watch party. And it was just like, are you kidding me? Like, you've been completely desensitized from sin. Christians should have no part of these type of things. And my mind was blown because, I mean, that hit... Sin had complete, he had been tolerating sin. And I think about other aspects of my life, and you need to do the same with yours. What are you tolerating? I think about this new, and this, this morning I looked it up, and it, Dahmer was the number one series on Netflix. And there's a lot of evil things that go on in the life of Jeffrey Dahmer, and this is a dramatization of what went on in his life. Strong sexual content, intense violence and torture, strong language throughout. And I've heard a lot of Christians talk about how good this show was. People that go to church regularly, they've said how good this show is and how, how you need to watch it. And I said, well, doesn't it have a lot of, of bad stuff in there? And they said, oh, yeah, but it's a true story. So just because it's true doesn't mean that it needs to invade my life and invade my soul. 
And I encourage you to look at the same thing. Even if it's true, you need to make sure that you're not tolerating evil. Evaluate what you're allowing entertainment-wise, sports-wise, whatever it is. Evaluate and make sure that you're not tolerating evil in your life. Eventually, your toleration of sin is going to lead to the problem at the next church, and that's Pergamum. And Pergamum, it was an impressive city. It was an impressive sight to see this, this, this city. It was built in two different tiers. And this is the upper city. And on my picture, this looks really good, but this is really grainy up here. Um, this is the upper city, or what's called the Acropolis. And then down below, um, 1,100 feet down below, stood the city of Pergamum. So the, the Acropolis is up top. And this included the theater, the temples, the worship center, um, and it was a, truly a massive just entertainment system um, that they had here. And this is modern day, of course, but there were hundred or like 10 to 20 temples at the time um, that people would go and worship their specific Greek god or their specific Roman god in. Um, and just imagine this being 1,100 feet above the city. I mean, you could see it for miles. This is a... a archaeologist uh, picture of what's still there um, on top of this Acropolis. You can see in the background how far down that city goes. Um, but this is the Temple of Trajan where, like I said, emperors were worshipped in this. Um, this is another temple. Um, this is an artist's rendition. But this is where people would come to worship these Greek gods. And you can see how much money and how much effort in the architecture was put into these things. Um, people valued these Greek and Roman emperors uh, Greek gods and Roman emperors, and they wanted to worship them. And right in the middle of all this was the altar of Zeus. And right on the t very top where everyone could see it, 1,100 feet up, right on the edge, you could see this altar of Zeus. And this is the actual altar of Zeus. It was moved from Pergamum to a museum called the Pergamum Museum in Berlin, Germany, um, right around 1900, and it stands there. And it's, I mean, it's in great shape, and you can actually go and see this. It's 100 feet wide and 100 feet deep. And you can just imagine seeing this as you're, as you're traveling into the city of Pergamum. It's sitting up 1,100 feet up. You can see it for miles and miles. Um, and this was the altar of Zeus, really the biggest of all the Greek gods. You've probably heard of Zeus. Um, but this was truly the worship center of Asia for these Greek gods. And so Jesus, when he writes to the church at Pergamum, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And so I, I really think that this Satan's throne, I really think that that's probably the altar of Zeus or the massive theater that was there or the temples that are there. Whatever it is, they live where Satan's throne is. They had evil surrounding them. They were in the middle of evil. He says, yet you hold fast my name. You did, did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so we get this story about Antipas. And the history behind this, church, uh, church uh, legend or church history, people say that he was burned alive in this bronze bull. He was murdered. And this had gotten out, this news had gotten out, and it spread over the world, and Jesus knew about it. But... Um, Persecution was so bad here, and I think this just gives us a, a small glimpse into the persecution that the church there at Pergamum had to go through. And Jesus acknowledged their faithfulness. He says, um, Antipas, my faithful servant, you hold fast my name. And so they, they were doing some good things. 
despite them being surrounded by this, this throne of Satan. He goes on in verse 14, though, and he says, But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we talked about the Nicolaitans earlier. They were these, these people who tolerated evil. They, they practiced evil. They wanted other people to participate in their evil. And I'm sure that the, the teachings of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, those were two separate groups. But they, uh, either way, they were both evil. They both taught evil, wanted other people to participate in their evil. And this had influenced the church there at Pergamum to where it wasn't any longer an outsider speaking in, but this was now a part of the church there. They followed evil practices and participated in immorality. And we read more about these followers of Balaam here in Second uh, Peter chapter 2, talking about the, the people of Balaam. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. So that's some harsh language. To have eyes full of adultery, where all you can see is lust and love and sex and, and all these evil things. That's all they thought about. Insatiable for sin. That, in, that word insatiable, that's the only place in the, the Greek New Testament that this is used. And it means they couldn't get enough. It was impossible to satisfy, is what that literally translates as. It's impossible to satisfy. They couldn't get enough of sin. That's what they thought about when they woke up. That's what they thought about all day. That's what they thought about when they were going to sleep. It had overcome them. Where you choose to live in life, just like the church in Pergamum, does not make it right to practice the sin that's in the area that you're in. And that had happened here at Pergamum. They had tolerated the people of Balaam. They had tolerated the Nicolaitans to the point where now they're participating in the sin uh, there at that church. And it's not a far leap from toleration to participation. And I hope that you'll identify that in your life because it can be really consequential um, in your Christian life. So what sin are you participating in that you once tolerated in? You know, we hit on the big ones, drugs, sex, alcohol, all the time. But I don't want to do that this morning. I want you to think about your life and think about the small things, the things that, the, the hidden things, the things that this church doesn't know about, the thing that your family doesn't know about, the things that your spouse doesn't know about even. What are you hiding? What, are you, what were you once tolerating that has now gone to you participating in it? Because the problem is participation then leads to this next point, and that's the church at Laodicea who was indifferent. And indifference is a terrible state to be in. The church at Laodicea, they were indifferent. And it's, it's really one of the most interesting churches to me um, to study about and to read about. And we read about the church at Laodicea when Paul was writing uh, to Ep or he was speaking about Epaphras in, the, uh, church, in his writings to the Colossians. He's writing to the church at Colossae, and he says, For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Heropolis. And so these three cities were grouped together. Um, on a map, they were only six miles apart from each other. Um, they were down in the same river valley. Um, and this is the river valley. Um, out of all the churches mentioned in Revelation, Laodicea really has the best setup as far as their surroundings go. They were down in this river valley, fertile pastures, 
lots of water, very beautiful. It kind of looks like Colorado to me, mountains around, trees, valleys, rivers, and they had, it, had a good setup as far as that goes. And here's a, a map of these three churches, Heropolis to the north of Laodicea, and then Colossae over to the east of Laodicea down the Lycus River. Um, and like I said, six miles apart. These churches were, were grouped very close together. Most likely they were all established at the same time on one of Paul's missionary journeys as he went through uh, this Lycus River Valley. Um, but the church at Laodicea, or the city at Laodicea imported their water from two different places, Heropolis and Colossae. You can go and this is an actual picture of, of the pools there at Heropolis. And these were warm uh, hot springs. And back in the day, they had open day spas. And people would come from all over the world to sit in the bathing pools here at Heropolis. Heropolis. Uh, this city was founded on a fault. And so hot mineral water would come up from the ground and would create these hot, hot springs that people would lay in. And this water was shipped to Laodicea. And then you get to the church at Colossae, and this is a picture taken from where Colossae once used to be. Um, it was settled at the foot of a mountain. And the, you can see the snow-capped mountains up there. The melting of that would cause this really cold river water to come down. So they had an endless supply of cold river water that would come into the city of Colossae. And that too, um, that was given to all the, the people and then the plants and the crops, and then that was shipped down the road uh, to the church at Laodicea. And so you could see Heropolis exporting their hot water, Colossae exporting their cold water to the, the city at Laodicea. And I think that makes this next part when Jesus addresses the church there make a lot more sense. He says, I know your works. You're neither cold nor hot. Would or I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold, hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The problem is you're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. You're indifferent. You're apathetic. It's no good. Lukewarm water is no good. I wish that you were either like the hot waters of Heropolis. I wish that you were like the cold waters of Colossae, but you're neither. You're no good. You're lukewarm. You're apathetic. Jesus wants you to be cold. That's useful to him. Jesus wants you to be hot. That's useful to him. He just doesn't want you to be lukewarm. And that's what the church here at Laodicea was. They were indifferent. They were lukewarm. He goes on to clarify what he means by that. And he says, for you say, I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And that's some strong language. You think about if that were to be said about the church here at Amarillo. That's terrible. That's terrible things that he was telling the church here at Laodicea, that's how bad it had gotten there. That's one of the worst things that I could imagine that Christ could ever say about a church. He's, they say, or Christ quotes them as saying, I need nothing. They don't need me. That's what Christ says. They don't, they don't care about me. You don't care about me. You say that you need nothing from me. Not realizing they're poor, they're blind, they're naked. They thought they'd made it all. They thought that they had done all of this stuff for themselves. They thought they had made it. They didn't need anyone anymore. They were completely reliant on themselves when Christ says, you need to be completely reliant on me. And this can't be our attitude. It's an arrogant attitude to have where we don't need anybody. We always need to make sure that we're 100% reliant on Christ. And, and the church here at Laodicea, they had lost sight of that. They were 100% relying on themselves and what they had done themselves instead of relying on Christ. And so what's your attitude? 
Are you a lukewarm Christian? Are you indifferent and apathetic and you just don't care anymore? You just show up just to show up? Or do you 100% rely on Christ? I saw this quote and I liked it. It says, nothing is so fatal to religion as indifference. And I want to change that a little bit, just a little bit. I want to change that up just a little bit. Nothing is so fatal to your soul as indifference. If you're indifferent, you just don't care anymore. And if that's where you're at this morning, I beg with you, I plead with you, please make a change in your life because it can be catastrophic if, if you don't change uh, your thoughts now, if you don't repent. And that's this uh, message that we saw, um, be strengthened to endure tribulation and repent of evil. That's really the overarching theme like I talked about. And that's, that's Christ's message to all seven of these churches in a little bit different way That's his message to all of them. Be strengthened to endure this coming tribulation that the the book of Revelation, um, starting at chapter uh, chapter four and going through the rest of the book, be strengthened to endure that. If you're going to endure that and be ready to endure that, you need to repent of evil. Turn away from evil. Turn away from your indifference. Turn away from idolatry. Quit tolerating idolatry. Quit practicing idolatry. Turn back to your first love and be strengthened to endure this tribulation. And Jesus has a call to action to each one of these churches, and that's what I want to close with this morning. At the end of his address to Smyrna, who was about to suffer, he says, be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. To Ephesus, who had lost their first love, who lost their fervor, who lost their, their initial love that they had for Christ, he says, remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. Repent, do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. To Thyatira, who tolerated sin, who tolerated Jezebel and evil in their lives, repent of her works. To the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have till I come. Hold fast. To Pergamum, who participated in sin, who were surrounded by this throne of Satan, who eventually allowed this to creep into the church and they were participating in evil. He says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And then to Laodicea, this church who was indifferent, who was apathetic, who didn't care anymore, who said, I need nothing from Christ. This is what he says to them. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. You know what this tells me? There's not a group that's too far gone. If you're completely apathetic, you can still be zealous and repent. And that's what Christ wanted them to do here at this church at Laodicea. And Christ offers every one of us a chance to repent, to think about what sin we're, we're participating in, what we're tolerating in, whether we're indifferent, whether we've lost our first love. Christ offers us a chance to repent. And I want to leave you this morning with the very last thing, right after verse 19, right after he tells this church here, at Laodicea to be zealous and repent, he tells them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. This is his message to the church that was indifferent. Is There's still time. You can still be with me on the throne one day if you'll be zealous and repent. And this is his invitation to us. I mean, to all these churches, very similar wording if you go and look at all these seven letters. 
you can, you can be with me in a home in heaven. You can sit with me on my throne. You can have a crown. And this morning, I'm gonna, we're going to offer an invitation. And I want you to get your songbooks out. If you want to be on the throne with Christ, you have to be a child of his. You have to be a believing child of his that's enduring. Someone that's not just letting their, or who's lost their fervor. Someone that's not tolerating sin, not participating in sin. Someone that's not indifferent. And if you find yourself in one of those spots, you have to change. Because the fact is, we all fit into one of those five categories. And during this invitation song, I want you to look up here and I want you to figure out which one of those camps am I in? Which one of those churches do I most identify with? Because if you identify with the bottom four, there's room for improvement and you need to ask forgiveness. You need to repent and be zealous and change the way that you're living. If the church can help you in any way, please come forward while we stand and sing.